0: Okay, great to be here tonight. There aren't too many of us, but uh, we're going to have a good time anyway, I trust. Um, I was talking this morning about dead batteries. It's happened. My laptop has gone out of battery, and I haven't been able to pick up the adapter. So I owe an awful lot to Richard at the back there, who has made work through the uh, the, 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 the um, uh, desk directly. and. Uh, If anything goes wrong with this presentation, it's down to me not getting the fonts right or something like that. So we shall see what happens. Anyway, we're going to read from Philippians chapter 1, aren't we? And uh, we'll be reading uh, tonight from verse 12 onwards down to the end of verse 26. So if you have a Bible handy, this is what it says. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is writing this from prison, just for context. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former hmm, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stop trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. (laughs) That's all we have to look at tonight, and uh, let's just see if this thing is working. Yes, it's working. Look at that. There's the manuscript of, actually, it's Philippians chapter 4, but that was the best I could do. I couldn't get you a chapter 1 picture tonight. So, what do we know about this letter to Philippians, which you've just started studying? There are several things that are unusual about it. First of all, it's a letter that doesn't seem to have just one theme. It dots about various different things that Paul's interested in. One of the mercies is that this letter is indisputably written by the Apostle Paul. So we haven't had 100 years of liberal critics saying, well, it's probably a fake written by somebody in the second century. Nobody has ever really seriously questioned this letter. This is definitely Paul. But instead, they've said, oh, well, it's lots of different topics, so probably it's not one letter. It's all been stuck together from different bits and pieces and fragments. There is no evidence for that apart from the fact that it, it goes through lots of different things. And sometimes the transitions, as we're going to see, are a little bit abrupt from one section to another. And it makes perfect sense, quite honestly, to read it as one letter. So it seems to me, although I'm not a Philippians expert, that current scholars are turning back to saying, yep, this is one letter and it was written by the Apostle Paul. It just has a lot of different things to say. Now, you wouldn't be surprised by that, really, would you? Because Philippi was a church where Paul had a, a, a tremendous number of friends. And towards the end of the letter, as you may have noticed if you read right through it, he talks about some people who've worked with him in the gospel and and, and really paid their dues and earned his respect and his love, and he's earned theirs as a result. It's a church where he's known and he's cared for. And the actual, really, the occasion of writing this letter from prison to them was that they had sent one of their number with a gift to him. And Paul was worried because he'd been sick and therefore delayed. And in those days, you couldn't send a text or a WhatsApp through to say, sorry, I'll be a bit late in coming back. And so they would be worried about Epaphroditus and how he was doing and where he was and so on. So it's it's a very family kind of a letter. And you can imagine how, if you're writing a letter to members of the family, um, you will go around lots of different topics. Oh, by the way, did I tell you about last Wednesday? And it's that kind of letter. So it's it's a letter that doesn't stick to one theme. So it's a letter to people Paul knew well. It doesn't have the, 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 the kind of pomposity, well not pomposity, but the, the gravity and the solemnity of some of the other letters. Because he knows these people really well. And, and as you'll notice on the way through, that means he can really tell them all as well. <laughs> he's, not, he's not slow to tell them where he thinks they're short, but in a loving family kind of a way. The third thing about it is it's a letter to a church with a fantastic record. They've really shone... Uh, since their foundation. You remember how the church in Philippi started? Um, It was when Paul was thrown into prison. And then uh, he was out of prison uh, when the God managed to demolish the prison and uh, uh, save the jailer and his family at one stroke. And um, that church uh, began to be a a bold witness in that little... Roman community. It was a Greek city, but it was a Roman colony, and so they wore Roman clothes. Lots of people spoke Latin and so on and so forth, and it was a place where um, there was a a close relationship between all of the people who, who had come from other places to be Romans in this Greek city. And so the church spread, and they were very bold in what they said and said, and tremendous things happened in Philippi. But now, there were problems, And some of the very people who had worked together so harmoniously were causing the difficulties. And so Paul wanted to write to them to knock their heads together and uh, make sure that they didn't do any more of it. And a letter from prison. But the question is, which prison? <laughs> when was this that the Apostle Paul was in prison? Clearly it wasn't when he was in Philippi in prison because A, the church didn't exist uh, at that point. Well, yes, it did really, but not, yeah. And uh, B, um, he didn't have time overnight to write a letter. He was busy singing, and then the walls fell down. So clearly it's a later imprisonment we're talking about. When? Uh, Traditionally, uh, preachers and Bible scholars have assumed that this was towards the end of Paul's life. When he went to Rome after his third missionary journey, the end of Acts, where you see him settled in his own house, but under house arrest. Not able to move around freely, but able to write letters. And normally people have thought that the letter comes from there. I'm not sure about that, I must admit. A growing number of people have been pointing out that actually this imprisonment doesn't sound like house arrest. Paul's concerned that he might lose his life at any moment. And that being the case, it sounds a little bit more serious than that. And there's a growing number of people who are saying, well, perhaps this was sent from Ephesus. Because you remember, Paul was in Ephesus to preach for two years. This is the act series that we did last year. And uh, while he was in Ephesus, it would appear he was sent to prison. We don't know much about it, but we do know from Second Corinthians that he fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, and there are references to a period of great strain and pressure and almost despair that he went through. And we can't fit that anywhere else into what we know about his life except those two years in Ephesus. So clearly it was a pretty hard time. And the, the chances are that he spent some time in prison there, and it was from there that he sent this letter back uh, when they sent him the gift through Epaphroditus. We don't know, but clearly it was a serious imprisonment. And it was towards the end of Paul's life. It wasn't when he was in Rome. At least at this point, he was in his 50s. And he was staring at not very many prospects for the future. So that's the background to the letter. Now, um, if you haven't seen it, the Bible Project video on this subject is not a bad one. <laughs> it, uh, it does a, a complete analysis of the Book of Philippians in just five minutes, the way these Bible Project videos do. You'll find them on YouTube and places like that. And it starts out by putting this kind of little shape, cartooning this up on the screen. And they say, all of these different subjects in Philippians actually center around one passage. And that's the famous bit in chapter 2 that talks about let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it describes how Jesus put himself last and put his own agenda to the side. He thought it not robbery to be made equal with God and yet he took on the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. And what Jesus suffered has led to his exaltation. And Paul says let this mind be in you. Look at life the same way. You may have to suffer now but it's for the benefit of others, and it leads to glory. And uh, the Bible Project people say, it's funny how every subject Paul deals with comes back to this same theme, that God's power expresses itself in our life, sometimes through our suffering, through our willingness to let go of our own agenda, our own wishes, our own desires, and simply serve him and serve others without any thought of the cost. And so by the time you reach the end of the video, it's pretty populated, and that's what you see. And you see how in the centre of it you've got the Messiah poems, they call it, uh, right at the heart of things, talking about his rejection, uh, death on the cross, and then the exaltation of Jesus at the end of it, and everything else in the letter, every other topic that's covered, ranges around it. But don't screw up your eyes trying to look at it now, uh, look at it on YouTube or somewhere else instead, and uh, you'll get the point they're talking about. I think they're, they're on the right lines. The passage we're looking at tonight, I think, ties into that very much indeed. Because this is the part in chapter 1 where Paul's answering some of their unspoken questions about, what is actually going on with Paul? Is he still alive? Will this letter that we send through Epaphroditus and the gift ever actually reach him? Uh, he's been in prison here in Philippi, and we know how horrible that was, just for one night. He's in prison for a long time now, it would appear. Is God going to work a miracle? Why hasn't God knocked that prison down yet? You know, and they must have had all sorts of questions in their mind. And so the backdrop to the passage we've just read together is that Paul's saying, Now I want you to know that what happened to me has turned out for the advance of the gospel. Don't worry, folks. I'm still alive. I have problems. But God is working through those problems. And I think in this passage that we've read tonight, there are really three problems, and you all start with purr, that uh, that, uh, we're looking at. First of all, there's a problem of prison. (laughs) Paul's not able to move around. And evangelise people. You remember how when he went to Ephesus he hauled the lecture hall of Tyrannus and for a while after he'd finished his sail making tent making job for the day he'd have a quick bite of lunch then get stuck in in Tyrannus lecture hall uh, uh, lecturing to anybody who would come and listen answering questions presenting the gospel doing whatever he could to get it across and then after that he'd spend the evening having personal chats with people that wanted to know more. It was pretty hard work and it took him all over Ephesus and you needed to be free to do that job so now Paul was in prison. What was he actually doing? What was going on with him? So prison was one of his problems. He, he didn't have the same freedom of movement as, as before. And the second of his problems was what, what one might call preachers. Because there were other people, now that he was in jail, who were preaching the same message. And some of them were preaching it for good motives, but some of them were pretty dodgy characters. They were preaching the true gospel, but the reason they were preaching it was either to do Paul down and, uh, and uh, gain a march on him while he wasn't able to answer back, or else to gain money and status and prestige for themselves. And it's the gospel being used as an implement for somebody else's success, and clearly Paul is troubled by that. And the third thing is his prospects. Where's he going from here? He could be killed, it could be his death. What would it mean if he died? Well, he'd be in the presence of Jesus. But on the other hand, he believed in the Philippians behind and and, and others who still needed his services. What was God going to do? And Paul just simply speculates about what lies ahead and says, look, this is how my mind is is focused now. This is how I'm feeling about it. So I think the way he fills in the background on those three problems he's got helps us uh, as Christians to be challenged in different areas of our life. The prison problem is all about when pressures come in from the outside, isn't it? And you expect pressures from an evil world that doesn't know anything about Jesus. But when other Christians start mistreating you and causing problems for you and undermining you and using what you have given your life to promote as a means of gain for themselves, well, that is tough to take, isn't it? And sometimes it's when you're stabbed in the back by other believers in whatever way that it's really, really hard. It's easy to sit in prison and glorify God when it's only heathens who don't understand who are up against you, but when it's other Christians. That is so dispiriting. And it just knocks the wind out of your sails, doesn't it? And then when you look at the future, when you look at the prospects, there may be a, a major worry in our lives about our health, about our finances, a, a, about some problem that's coming up that, that, that's looming that other people don't know about, but it's worrying us sick. Will I have a job this time, next year? Will somebody close to me still be here? All, all kinds of things can, can, can happen that cause these looming worries about our prospects for the future. How does Paul handle these things? Well, that's what we're going to look at just for a few minutes tonight. So let's look at them one by one, shall we? First of all, you've got the prison problem. And Paul says, listen, the first thing I want you to know before we say anything else is that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's not been a bad thing at all. Okay, I'm in prison, and that's not great for anybody. But what's happened through that calamity for me is that the job I'm doing has actually started to happen in new ways. And he says there are two great benefits of being in jail. One is that uh, everybody, the, the whole palace guard and everybody else, know why I'm here. What's this man doing in prison? Who put him in there? The news has gone all round the place. And the whole palace guard knows about it. How did the palace guard know about it? Well, presumably because Paul was in jail uh, for several hours a day, he was chained to a Roman soldier who couldn't get away from him. (laughs) That's a fantastic opportunity to say what you want to say, isn't it? And uh, you can imagine Paul sitting there um, on the bench next to an unwilling uh, Roman soldier and saying, so, how I in the way of salvation? Yes, five times already. Okay. <laughs> and uh, eventually, you know, as they go on talking about it together and sharing their experiences and things like that, Paul starts to make sense to the Roman soldier. And people start to become soldiers, even within the palace guard. Now, we don't know uh, if... Uh, uh, An awful lot happened if if many soldiers got converted in Ephesus. They were certainly challenged, they certainly heard, but we do know that in several Roman cities, and especially in Rome, there were soldiers who became Christians out of nowhere. (laughs) How did that happen to them? Clearly somebody got into their company for long enough to communicate to them what Jesus was all about, so that even Roman soldiers, who typically weren't philosophers or thinkers who had sworn an oath, a sacramentum, to join the Roman army, which was made to the heathen gods to serve them and the emperor above all things. Even soldiers in that kind of position, with that kind of mindset, were turning to Christ. And uh, that that was uh, the kind of thing that made it happen. Christians in jail, coming up against soldiers who were guarding them, sharing their faith, and finding things happen as a result. So that was one good thing that was happening. Paul said the palace guard are hearing about it, but not just them. The message is spreading everywhere as well. That guy who was lecturing in Tyrannus Lecture Hall, where's he gone? Oh, he's in prison. Why is he in prison? Well, it's that message he was teaching. Yeah, what was that message? I never really understood it. And so the message was spreading and people were explaining it and finding out about it. And Paul says, look, I'm suffering, but the gospel is spreading and that's brilliant. There was another thing as well, and as he, he, he sat there in prison he was thinking to himself, other Christians are doing the job for me. <laughs> All those hours of toil I put in at the end of a working day, I can sit back in jail now, okay, it's not too, too uh, comfortable and Netflix is not yet available for two thousand years, um, but it's, that's okay, you know, I'm here, I'm sitting, uh, I'm, I'm getting fed by other people, and these Christians are doing the job for me. It's wonderful. And he says, doesn't he, that some of them are doing out in love. Uh, they've been motivated by Paul's example. They, they know that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And so their conscience has started to be affected. They've started to think, I, we can't leave this to Paul any longer. You know, It's down to us to do the job now. And if he's in jail, if he's suffering because he loved us enough to bring the gospel to us, well, we've got to follow that example. And so suddenly all over the place, Christians are starting to get a little more dedicated to sharing their faith. I remember how back in the early 60s, there were lots of evangelists going around, holding tent campaigns and crusades and things all over the place, in the Billy Graham model. And the great temptation for many Christians and churches was to leave it to the the evangelist to do it. Maybe I'll bring my friends along, maybe I won't, but anyway, he can stand at the front, and when he says the magic words, they'll all come forward and become Christians. And uh, that meant that an awful lot of Christians never actually shared their faith themselves. And sometimes when the evangelist is taken away, it motivates other Christians. I remember Billy Strachan, who was a a, a comedian, Yeah, people remember Billy Strachan, a comedian from Fife, same county I came from, so he and I had a lot in common, um, except his jokes were better than mine, but uh, he used to do a mission, a youth mission every year in Little Hampton in East Sussex. And I remember telling the story of how uh, one year he got really fed up because the young Christians were relying on him to do all the work. And uh, he announced, okay, we'll have the coffee bar as usual tomorrow night, but I'm not going to be, that's my night off, I'm not going to be doing anything. And uh, you guys, you're going to do the work, but I don't know how to do it. Well, that is your problem, not mine, I'm having a night off. But Billy, you're here to do it. Well, I'm not doing it tomorrow night. And so he said he went along anyway just to see what happened. And he sat in the corner and just pretended to read his Bible, watching what was going on. And he said, there that night, there was a young man who'd um, often been there before, a Christian who was always coming up to to Billy with really sort of pointless, trivial questions, like, Billy, is it all right for a Christian to wear his tie this wide or that wide, or, you know, all sorts of trivial stuff. And uh, he came up to Billy as Billy sat there and said, "Um, Billy, I don't think I can do this. And Billy said, your problem, not mine, go home if you can't. And he went away thinking, that great man of God has just let me down again. And uh, he, he came across to Billy and said, look, I really can't do this. And Billy said, look, the guy over there, go and talk to him. And he said he looked across the other side of the room, and there was this guy with a heap of hair, and he assumed it was, there was somebody underneath it, one of the earliest hippies. And the other, I can't talk to him. I can't tell him how to become a Christian. And uh, Billy said, well, oh, that's okay, talk to somebody else. And Yeah, but that guy wants to know. And Billy said, all right. So you go across and you say, look, friend, this, I understand what you're asking me. You want to become a Christian. Unfortunately, on this occasion, I am unable to help you. Good night. He said, oh, I can't do that. And so Billy said, well, go to it then. And so he just sat back and turned back to the book of Obadiah, or whatever it was. And uh, the young man went very, very slowly and hesitantly across the floor. And he asked the other guy a question. And he got an answer back. And he said something else. And then he sat down. And the two of them started talking. And they had an animated conversation. And Billy actually lo- was looking somewhere else for a while. And when he looked up next, he noticed that the guy with the long hair had gone. But the young Christian was shooting across the floor past him. And Billy said he just stick up his foot, um, and tripped him up and caught him by the collar before he hit the floor. And said, where are you going? And the guy said... Let me go. I'm going to get another one. (laughs) And he said he was never a problem after that. (laughs) Sometimes when we leave it to other people, (laughs) because they can do it better, because they're professionals, because God has given them a a gift that's been shown over years, then we never get around to doing it ourselves. But when you go out and do the work yourself, you find that God works through the apostle Paul, and he works through you. you just have to be willing to be useful to him. So Paul is saying the prison problem is not really a problem because... Um, God never puts you into difficulties that you cannot get beyond if you just have faith in him. And often putting you into that difficulty is part of his making you more useful. This guy is one of my heroes. This is Charles Albert Tindley. And he was the writer of many hymns. He grew up, I was going to say in slavery, but he didn't actually. His mother was free and his father was a slave. When Tindley was born in 1850, that meant he was kind of half free. And so they said, right, you're really a slave, and you have to work, work on the slave farm. So he never had any real education, but he taught himself to read and write because he was determined that he was going to serve God in some kind of a way. And he managed to leave the South in the end and make his way north to Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, he got the job as a janitor for a church of 130 black people. And he swept the floors and looked after the place and uh, did everything that was necessary just to make a little bit of money for himself and his wife. He was now married. While he studied in the evening, uh, uh, by correspondence, courses that would turn him into a certified blind pastor. And eventually that happened to him. And uh, he started to preach. And the church started to think, wow, this guy's really got a gift from God. And he started to write music as well. And they started to sing some of his hymns. And eventually he was offered a job in the very church where he was a janitor. And you know, he grew that church from 130 people to 10,000. And there were mainly black people who'd been through the same sort of terrible, dispiriting problems that he'd been through. And this is one of his hymns, which you've probably heard. But unless you've heard a black choir singing, it, you've not really heard it. By and by, when the morning comes and all the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story, how we've overcome, and we'll understand it better, by and by. And that was Tindley's philosophy. And it it was what uh, helped him to help loads and loads of other people, starting from a position of having nothing and just trusting God to what what he needed to bless other people. This is a decades-old magazine article about Tindley and his church, and it says it's called The Church That Welcomed 10,000 Strangers. And it talks about some of the poverty of the, the, the uh, blacks who'd come to Philadelphia. It's written by Tindley himself as a description of his ministry. And then he tells a story of, you know, one family who came to Philadelphia having just come from the slave states with nothing, literally just the clothes they stood in, and uh, the, the, the father uh, found a slum dwelling to, to rent a room in for him and his wife and his kids. And he started getting notes posted on the door. And this man said, go home, nigger, or we'll burn you out. And after a few weeks of this treatment, he just couldn't stand it any longer. He thought he'd come to the land of opportunity, the land of hope, and people just hated him there as well. And he took his own life. And Tindley says in the article, I've met so much like that, who are reduced to absolute desperation, who are right at the end of the rope because they don't know what to do. And we have to be Christ to them. We have to show the love of God and the, the, the faith in, in their potential and what they can become that leads people to the cross and turns them to Christ. And they need to see that whatever their present circumstances, God has an answer to those problems. And uh, here are a more verses of his hymn. Uh, this one's well known. The dark on every hand, and we may not understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land, but he'll guide us with his eye and go we'll follow till we die, and we'll understand it better by and by. The next verse is not really sung very much in the hymn books, because it doesn't fit many of our affluent Western lifestyles, but it certainly discusses. Uh, described what Tindley's uh, black community were going through at that time. We are often destitute of the things that life demands. Want of food and want of shelter. Thirsty hills and barren lands. We are trusting in the Lord and according to the word we will understand it better better, by and by. So Paul didn't know why he was in prison. He just knew that God was using it and that was enough for him. And he just prayed that God would be glorified through what was happening to him. We have to face our problems, don't we, in that same way as well. Is, yeah, that's better, it's doing something. So, second problem then is the picture problem. And that's where Paul starts talking about those who push Christ out of envy and rivalry. And uh, I think this, this suggests several things to me, because Paul is not pleased with what they're doing, and yet he says something surprising at the end of that little description, doesn't he? What does it matter? <laughs> The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. Isn't that interesting? And so Paul is saying it may be that the message is coming from a poison source, but it's a real message. And that's the important thing. I remember having this verse pointed out to me by uh, my first boss in British Youth for Christ, Philip Vogel and uh, it was in the context of a conversation he was having where somebody mentioned sneeringly the name of an evangelist who had turned out to be an alcoholic and Philip Vogel said, well, yep, I know he was a man who failed in many respects he was a man who was a hypocrite in some respects but he said, you must not dismiss somebody like that whom God used massively to bring people to faith genuine, real, saving, lasting faith just because the net was imperfect doesn't mean you shouldn't rejoice in the results. So it's complicated, isn't it? I think this little bit of the chapter says at least four things to us. The first of this is, preachers may have a number of motives. And I put up there, don't we all? <laughs> because you know how complicated and mixed our motives are for anything good that we do. Why would it be any different for people, for people who handle the world of God? I mean, I have to be careful when I prepare a talk, as I'm sure everybody else here who does that kind of thing uh, has to, that what I'm saying is not promoting myself or making myself look better than I am or pretending to be something I'm not. And the temptations to say something that just serves you rather than serving God and sometimes we quite large and you have to be incredibly honest with yourself. I've cut out all sorts of things from talks, stories, descriptions, things I could say, because they would reflect a little bit of glory and, and praise onto me. And preachers are sometimes like that. And so it's important to pray for people who are uh, responsible for handling the Word of God like that, isn't it? Because when our own selfish, sinful motives get mixed up with the communication of God's Word, God's Word still through. But we are not blessed as a result. Remember that one of the most powerful evangelists in the Bible was Jonah. <laughs> he got a whole bunch of heathen seamen praying to God, crying out in the deck of a heaving ship in a storm. But what, where was Jonah at that point? He was running away from what God had called him to. <laughs> and it's possible for God's servant to be pretty inferior and yet be handling a message which is, is, is tremendous. The second thing that comes across to me is that some people preach the true message from false motives. Sometimes it is for money. Sometimes it is for aggrandizement. It can be for all kinds of things. And we can see examples of that in the world around us right now, can't we? Because with the evangelical surge, especially across the Atlantic, over the last few decades... We have seen mega churches, massive ministries, all kinds of people exalted as evangelical superstars. With the rise of Christian music, we've had all kinds of people who've been promoted to the skies as, 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 as people who are fantastic saints of God, and they're not, they're just good at writing songs. And we need to be discerning about the fact that people's motives may not be uh, all that we want them to be. Ravi Zacharias, the world's greatest apologist, they called him until he died and uh, left behind a tragic legacy of women whom he'd tried to seduce and in some cases had slept with, uh, a a whole diary of things that were unsavoury activities. And, And he was somebody who just put himself in a position where everybody thought he was wonderful, and therefore he was accountable to nobody. Nobody really knew the kind of inner life he had. That didn't mean that he wasn't leading people to Christ in universities and meetings all over the world. Sometimes we've got to face it that the gospel will have its effect even when the messenger is not that great And third we need to preserve the truth and expose false teaching now Paul did that too He wasn't saying oh yeah, well whatever they do with it. That's all right They're talking about Jesus. So that's okay. No people will talk about Jesus for the wrong reasons as well And they'll come across with a false gospel Those are not the people that Paul's talking about here These are people who've got the gospel right, right if they've got their life wrong he talks about the others later on. There's that uh, incredible section at uh, chap- in the start of chapter 3 where he says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Oh, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? Actually, it does sound pretty severe, but um, what we tend not to notice in English is that in Greek, it's three words that all start with K. So he's kind of poking fun at them. He's, he's not going, he's more, more or less laughing at them. It's kind of like he's saying, those mangy uh, mutilation merchants or something like that. Those crazy core of cutters. <laughs> it's, 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 it's fun. But he doesn't think anything of them. It's derisory. He, he just dismisses them. These are not te- preaching the truth. They're preaching something dangerous. So the difference in our attitude between those who've got their message straight, <laughs> however much we may not like it the way they do it, and those who are preaching something's falsehood, where it's falsehood, We've got to stand up and say so. Where it's the real message with a false lifestyle, well, we have to do something about it if we're close enough. But it's not good enough to just despise them and say, oh, you don't have anything to do with that. Oh, that's not the way I do. Oh, it's that's, that's horrible. Because, you know, sometimes God will use uh, uh, people who are not the people we would choose to, to, to bring about his purposes. And the fourth thing that I think emerges from this is just this, the real gospel will make its way even if the messenger is poor. The gospel can come across in saving power in all sorts of ways. I mean, I do a series of lectures in Bible schools on Ecclesiastes, and um, Ecclesiastes is an unusual book, <laughs> and it certainly doesn't contain the full Christian gospel, yet I remember uh, my father ringing up once when I was about to do the series on Ecclesiastes and say, let me tell you a story I heard tonight. He'd been to a meeting in Edinburgh and there'd been a, an evangelist there who's planting churches, or was at that time, all over Russia. A young guy who'd been a merchant seaman had been tremendously converted and he'd just come out and become a, a very exciting church planter. And he told a story of his conversion in the meeting my father went to. And what had happened was his ship had docked in Leith Docks in, at Edinburgh and Christians had gone aboard with little scripture portions that they wanted people to have, and they were in all the different languages of the sailors who were on board. And uh, he got uh, a portion, as did everybody else, and some of them got the Gospel of John, some of them got Romans, you know, all sorts of different things. He ended up with Ecclesiastes. And do you know what? On the way back across the Baltic, he became a Christian. Now, I have read Ecclesiastes back in the front and I still can't work out how he did it <laughs> but God can do that can't he he can speak through a gospel tract that you find in a litter bin he can speak through somebody who's only been a christian five minutes uh, and and doesn't really know how to communicate it and the messenger may be inferior but the true message will get through so that's what Paul's saying here and he's saying rejoice if the gospel is being presented that is the big thing if it's not being presented then doubt about it <laughs> but if it's a real gospel then rejoice so what else Oh, yes, this is just something I thought I'd in. I I went with a a school group to Jerusalem a few years ago, and one of the places uh, that you go to is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, because people think, I think wrongly, but uh, people think this was probably the place where uh, Christ was laid in the tomb and the Holy Sepulchre uh, was. Um, And uh, one of the interesting things about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is that it's a, a monument to Christian division. For the last few hundred years, it's been administered not by one Christian denomination, but by six. Because they can't get on with one another. And uh, this is an article from uh, a non-Christian travel site, which which simply talks about it. The care over the church is shared by no less than six denominations. And it says the whole edifice is carefully parceled into sections, some being commonly shared, while others belong strictly to a particular section. A set of complicated rules governs the transit rights of the other groups through each particular section on any given day. You can't wander into the wrong part of the church, they will set on you and and beat you to death, and especially during the holidays. Arguments and violent clashes are not uncommon. In November 2008, the internet was flooded with videos of a fistfight between Armenian and Greek monks in one such dispute. A small section of the roof of the church is disputed between the Comtes and the Ethiopians. At least one Coptic month at any given time sits there on a chair placed in a particular spot to express this claim. On a hot summer day, he moved his chair some 20 centimetres more into the shade. This is interpreted as a hostile act and violation of status quo, and 11 people had to go to hospital. But the most ridiculous thing, which every tourist sees of the millions who go into that place every year, is in that picture right there. It's up there in front of the window. Do you see it? It's a ladder which has been there since at least 1785. That was the first time I had an engraving of it, and it's still there now. And nobody knows who put that ladder there. Presumably it was somebody from one of those six denominations. But we don't know who, and so nobody dares move it. It's an almost 300 year dispute, and it's still not settled. Now, what does that say? About the body of Christ? What does that say about Christian love? What does it say about what's really important? And it's a scandal, isn't it? As people go into the place where Christ is supposed to have risen from the grave, they see that evidence of the disunity between Christians on the way in. Well, there's a third bit, and we've got to say a little bit about this. I think I'll leave this guy out, although he has some good things to say, and just go on to the prospect's problem. Because this, let's face it, is a bit of the the, the passage that we've got tonight that's most often quoted and talked about, and it's inspiring stuff. And Paul talks about what's going to happen to him, uh, and tries to work out exactly what it means. And I just want to pick out, finally, one or two things that he says in that famous passage uh, that, that, that uh, I think are, are important. The first thing is, uh, he says, I will be delivered. This is going to work out for my deliverance. And uh, that's an interesting word to use in, in verse 19. I, I, um, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit. And you might think, oh, Paul, so you're going to be set free. Oh, no. He's used the word, which really means salvation. Often it means deliverance, being set free from prison. Sometimes it just means salvation. And so Paul is keeping these options open. He's saying, well, I may be delivered from prison, or I may be delivered from this (laughs) world. He's not sure. He really does not know. And that's what he goes on to say, isn't it? I eagerly and expect that I will no way be ashamed. And that's the important thing. Whatever happens, be it life or death, I just don't want to bring shame to the cause of Jesus Christ. And so he also says, may Christ be exalted in me. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, I don't know which it will be, but I'm happy with either, as long as The exaltation of Christ goes on through me. And he says, through my body, through this physical body, which I feed, which I wash, which I clothe every day. The real nitty-gritty of reality. Uh, Christ being exalted in me doesn't mean me thinking spiritual thoughts in, in my brain secretly. It means me putting my body out there on the line. Whatever they do to me, whatever they do to this piece of flesh, as long as Christ is exalted through it, that's fine. That's challenging stuff, isn't it? And then he says this. He says, um, to depart will actually be gain for me. I, I don't know what to do, he says, because both options are, are, are have advantages. Uh, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I go to be in the presence of Jesus, then that's great. I, I, I go home in just one fell swoop, and for me, that's fantastic. On the other hand, if my job's not finished here... If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. God has always got something more for you to do. <laughs> and the reason that Paul, even though in the world's terms, he's already a cynics, an old man, and, you know, 50 plus is where you hit it when you were, were Roman, um, although he's already in old age, he's not saying, well, it's pipe and slippers time, I think, what's on the telly tonight? He's still thinking, God has got something more for me. And you know, God has got something for all of us to do right through to the end of the road. And when you are of no further relevance to the cause of Christ in the world, he will give you a heavy hint by taking you home. And Paul was ready for either. As long as Christ was exalted in him, both options were okay. And then he said as well, I'm needed here. I know that you people really still need me, so there we are. I'm torn between the two. I desire desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you than I remain in the body. I I know that I don't want to stay here just through wishful thinking, just because I don't want to be beheaded because it hurts. (laughs) Not just because, you know, I want to live a few more years and see grandchildren or whatever. That was very likely, but still. Um, I know that the reason I want to stay here is for you. And that's a challenge as well, isn't it? What further goals have we got in our lives? What do we want to see happening before we die? One of the things has got to be that before God takes us, we'll have done everything he's called us to do. I was telling, I was down in Plymouth most of the week just uh, working with a a group of uh, churches who got together an Easter project um, uh, which brought lots of non-Christians uh, into the church every night to, 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 to listen. And one of the stories we told was a story of John Stephen Akwari, the first marathon runner from Tanzania to go into the Olympic Games. And this was Mexico in 1968. And Akwari found it very difficult, although he was an African champion runner, because Mexico City is at a high, high altitude, and he just couldn't compete properly. What was worse, after 19 kilometres of a 42-kilometre race, somebody banged into him and knocked him over, And he not only damaged his knee very badly, he also dislocated his shoulder. Most people would be screaming for the ambulance at that point. He got up and he carried on running. And he finally got to the stadium an hour after the winning run. He was miles behind everybody else. In fact, people were putting on their coats to go home when suddenly he came into the stadium. And he limped round. He had to do a final lap of the stadium. And he only just made it to the, the final line before collapsing in a heap. And by that point, everybody was on their feet just urging him on out of sympathy for this poor guy who was giving everything he had just to reach that finish line. And when he collapsed on the finish line, as you can imagine, newsmen all over the world ran with their microphones and said, Why? Why did not you give up? Why did you keep on going? You knew you weren't going to win, so why did you do it? And he simply said, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. And that's a challenge, isn't it? One more thing that Paul said, and then we're done. The final thing is, he says, that's how joy spreads. If I stay here, if I'm convinced of this, I know I will remain, he says in verse 25. And I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. When we beat ourselves out to serve others, the joy spreads. We are joyful as we see them being encouraged, and they're joyful as they see God giving them things through us. And the way that we model the Christ of Philippians chapter 2 in service to others that they don't expect and don't deserve, but it's there, it's unconditional, it's real, the more they see Jesus and the more their hearts are filled with joy. That's probably more than enough for one evening. Let me just pray and then I'll hand back to Steve, okay? Heavenly Father, there's a few verses, but there is so much challenge in them. We've only started exploring it, really. But uh, if we took it to, to its full, we'd be, we'd be here till midnight. I just pray that through this one thing will stick in our minds, which will be a challenge to each of us this week. I know there will be for me. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. As we read the courageous words of a man who gave everything he had for you, and he was conscious that he was the chief of sinners, to whom God had given grace. We pray that we will be encouraged and challenged at the same time to be like him and to serve Jesus in that Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2 kind of way that shows the world our life is not about ourselves, but about your glory and your exaltation. For your name's sake, amen.